Last week we looked at the three trials of Jesus as he was brought first before Pilate and then pawned off on Herod, trying to get him to make a decision, and finally came back to Pilate. And if you know the story or remember last week, we we noticed that the Jewish religious religious leaders were just vehemently opposed to one thing, (laughs) Jesus staying alive. They wanted him dead. They wanted him gone. They wanted him out of the way. But Pilate found no guilt in Jesus. And so he said, I'll tell you what, we'll whip him and set him free. Now, I'm, uh, that's definitely a different time than in our day to day. They don't do that anymore. I'm, I'm grateful for that. Uh, but the crowd, spurred by the religious leaders, thought that was not enough. And so, as you remember, Jesus, through those trials, said very little. If you, and it's something I had never really noticed in the story until this year as I studied through the passages that in the first trial, he said a few words. In the second trial, he said nothing. In the third trial, he almost didn't exist. It was so little said in that situation. He was just there. He was like a wallflower almost. He's not, but, he, but in the sense of how much he said. And so there wasn't much there going on. But the decision was made that he would go to the cross. That was the way Pilate decided to calm the crowd down. And what I want us to look at today are the verbal responses that Jesus had after crucifixion. You would think if you're trying to defend yourself, you'd speak what? Before you're convicted. But Jesus said very little. But now, afterwards, he speaks. And he speaks some interesting words uh, and on his way to and in the event of crucifixion. Now, let me kind of give you a review of what, where crucifixion came from because we're not going to focus a lot on it today, but I want you to kind of keep that in your mind. Uh, crucifixion was originally developed by the Persians, the Persians. The Persians are the Iranians today. It's what the world calls it, that area now. But the Romans adopted this excruciatingly painful form of punishment, capital punishment. And what happened in Jesus' day was a person would be convicted to die. And there's actually some interesting historical evidence that there were a few women who suffered this fate as well, which you think, wow, it would have been awful for anybody, but especially a female. But as the person would be taken out, they would likely be stripped of all or most of their clothing, they would have spikes driven through their wrists, their feet, and they would attach them to the upright part of the cross, and then they would set the pole in the ground with a jolt, and the person would be left condemned to die. And they would hang there. Sometimes, some stories read two and three days, they would hang there until they dehydrated and, and finally died from that moment or, or, or drowned in their own lungs. They would be dehydrated, exposed, humiliated. I got to tell you, the Romans had no law against cruel and unusual punishment like we do. But as Jesus began to go from that Antonia fortress where his conviction was handed down out to Golgotha, as we heard in the song just a few minutes ago, a series of events happen and series of statements are made by Jesus. And I want us to focus on that. You're going, aren't there seven last words of Jesus? Yes, there are. Luke records four of them. So we're going to stick with Luke's story because we're in Luke this year, kind of digging into his a little bit deeper in our lot, in our dive here. And so I want to draw your attention to those four statements as we look through the message this morning as Jesus speaks. The first focus comes in verses 28 to 31 where we find and notice that Jesus spoke, get this, to the lowly. He spoke to the lowly. As they're on the road out of the Antonia Fortress, I've had the privilege of several times walking that, at least the road today, which is most likely where the road was back then. And you come down to the, to the end of the street and you take a hard right turn and you're headed toward Damascus Gate. Somewhere in that area, 
on the stone paved streets with people all around, this event happens. And Jesus turns to them. I believe he's turning to the crowd, the ones standing there. The crowd made up of people who really had no name. We would not even know Simon's name, the Cyrene, if he wasn't in this story and got a name. Otherwise, he would have just been a name in the crowd, a person who picked up a cross, a person who was ordered to do something he didn't want to do. We had women standing there, people standing there. And in this moment, Jesus turns to them and says, here's his statement, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the, begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things, when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? That's the longest of the statements, by the way, that Jesus makes. Here we are along this road. Pilate has found no guilt. Instead, he says the religious leaders won't let it go, so he gives the death sentence, sends him out to be crucified, washes his hands of it, and says, I'm done. But Pilate offers this choice. He says, would you rather have the insurrectionist Barabbas or would you rather have Jesus released? And he really thought the crowd would say Jesus, but they didn't. And he sentences him to death and delivers him over to their will, as the text says it, sends him to this place of execution at the crossroads just north of the city. You know, in our day, we, we have capital punishment in our culture. I don't know what you feel about that, and it's really not the point this morning. But the reality is we typically don't see it happen. It happens in private rooms, limited audiences. The Romans were savvy in a sense. They said, we're going to put it out where everybody can see it. So if you go against us, you know what could happen to you. So the place of Golgotha is located just outside of where Damascus Gate is today at a crossroads between two major roads. If you want to put them at the corner of the intersection of I-35 and Interstate 30 in downtown Dallas, you want to be seen. That's what you want to think here. A road that goes north to Damascus and a road that goes west to Joppa. The crossroads of those two places is where this happens. And in this moment, he is delivered over to their will. We've already heard the song this morning, but let me remind you, a guy named Simon from Cyrene is forced to pick up the cross, or at least the cross piece, and carry it to Golgotha. Cyrene is a region from the southern shore of the Mediterranean, Libya today. Well, that's a long way from there. Yes, it is. And as they traveled these narrow stone streets of Jerusalem, many people were gathered on the street. Maybe they got caught by the crowd. Maybe they were there because they wanted to witness the spectacle of somebody or somebody's dying because they thought it would be fun. People are weird, guys. The things that we stop and look at on a freeway sometimes. Or maybe they're just at the wrong place at the wrong time. But into this crowd, this nameless, faceless crowd of people, the lowly of society were there. I think many of them were there for one reason. They were there to observe Passover because that was about to begin. And the city of Jerusalem was a place where they all came, but they were in the wrong place at the wrong time watching this event they didn't want to see. And it's at this point we find the first statement of Jesus. And by the way, the longest one that he shared, he speaks specifically, did you notice, to the daughters of Jerusalem. You're going, well, that's nice. Separate yourself from 21st century American culture where women have a great status and a great place in our culture and go back to the first century where women were little more than possessions. 
and had no rights, really had no voice. And Jesus takes time to speak to them. What a beautiful moment. He speaks to people who have no rights, no status. They were almost persona non gratia. His words cut like a knife. When he calls on them, don't weep for me, (laughs) weep for yourself. Weep for your children of what's going on here. He says it'd be better if you'd never had children or had to care for children. Now, please understand, Jesus isn't anti-kids. That's not his point. What he shows here is a love and compassion for those who are not the in crowd, the lowly. I don't know about you, but I find encouragement in that. He cares for those who are rejected. He cares for those who are down and out. He cares for those who are in difficult circumstances. And throughout his ministry, he did this again and again and again. Let me remind you of an event early in Jesus' ministry. You remember if he called a guy named Levi. We sometimes call him Matthew because that's his other name. But if you remember what happened after that event, Jesus went to a fellowship, to a gathering at Levi's home. Do you remember who was at that house? The high and mighty, the most important people in culture, of course. No, no, they were not. Here's the people who were there. They were the tax collectors and the sinners. It was so bad that the Pharisees came around, peeked in the room and said, what are you doing with them? Why would you hang out with those kind of people? And Jesus' response should really inform us about how important it is to care for the lowly. He said this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let me tell you something, my friends. The only way you enter into a relationship with Jesus is to recognize your sin and your sinfulness and become like the lowly in the culture. Jesus came not for the well, but for the down and out. He came not for those who are in good shape, but those who need his help. And he came for those who have needs. And he came not to call, my friends, the self-righteous, but he came to call sinners. Sinners like you and me who recognize the need of a Savior. Jesus showed his heart as he was bloodied and beaten, headed to Calvary to purchase redemption, and he spoke to the lowly. Second, Jesus spoke for the people. Look at verse 33. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, get him. As I might say, sick him. That's not what Jesus said. He said, Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. So after making his way through the streets of Jerusalem with some help by Simon of Cyrene, they get out to the crossroads just north of the city where he was crucified. And as we've mentioned earlier, this was a gruesome, degrading, humiliating event where the government clearly makes it perfectly clear to the people, if you oppose the state, this could happen to you as well. And when Jesus arrived at the place of the skull, Golgotha, with two other men condemned to die, we have a visual image here 
that is painful to think about. I don't know about you, but I think it's not just Jesus who died that day. It was three guys who died there. The other night, Abigail was asking me a little bit about the cross. And she says, well, what happened to the cross after Jesus died? And, she, and I said, baby, they probably used it again and again and again. Well, where is it now? We have no idea. People being placed in that situation. Now, make no mistake, you if you were crucified, you don't come back from it. You don't come back from this alive. This is something you die, and it's over because that is the point of a crucifixion. And the people who read this gospel that, that understand this, they go, okay, this is what happens. We read in other gospels of the ugliness of the moment. Luke almost sanitizes it for us. He says, well, they were crucified. Him. Boom, go on. And you go, wow. But any person living in Roman society would have grasped the horrors of that moment. They would have said, oh my, what happened was awful. And it is here we find this second statement. Look at it again. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In the middle of the horror of a crucifixion with freshly inflicted wounds on his body, Jesus reveals a layer of concern for people as he prays to God. And he prays for the people. He says, God, would you forgive them what they're doing? This terrible, though necessary action, would you forgive them? Now, don't misunderstand and don't overlook the ugliness of the moment. It was there. The ruler scoffed at Jesus. He said, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, he's chosen one. If he really is, he's not. And the soldiers mocked Jesus. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. But even in the face of all this ugliness, Jesus asked God, forgive them. Forgive them. Talk about an incredible example and amazing love. Jesus knew why it was there. His love for the people didn't just go to those who weren't there. He was there for those who were there, those who crucified him, those who watched him, those who helped get him there, those who caused him to be there, those who spoke vile words about him. He loved them all. There's a word of encouragement and instruction for us, my friends, here. Jesus came to save sinners and outcasts, those who are not those who are convinced of their religious superiority. He came to forgive. He came and spoke for the people. I'm reminded of a scene when Jesus was teaching at the synagogue. It was early on in his ministry again. I keep going back to these because these, these events are things that Jesus did again and again and again throughout his time on earth. And he was there and there was a woman. And the text says, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. And she was bent over and couldn't straighten herself up fully. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, woman, you're freed of your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. Friends, that, this is an example of what we should be doing. You're going, you know, I'm supposed to go out and heal people? Maybe not. But we're supposed to be people, my friends, who care for others, who love people, who stand there. And even when they are vile and disgusting and attack us and want to tear us down and want to kick us to the curb, we say, God, forgive them. Can I tell you something? That's not easy to do, is it? We want to say, sick them. God, would you take them out? Would you tear them down? Would you, would you get them for me? That's not the way we respond as children of the Holy One. So Jesus spoke to the lowly. He spoke for the people. He spoke with the one. 
He spoke with the one. Look at verse 42. We're in the situation where Jesus is on the cross, and apparently the two other guys are beside him, for what we can tell in the text. I think it says it explicitly. And one of them is shouting and saying, yeah, you saved yourself. Why don't you save us? Why don't you do something amazing? Why don't you do a miracle? Why don't you do a one-trick pony for me real quick, would you? And the other guy says, dude, what is your deal? Yes, I paraphrased. But that's how we'd have said it today, wouldn't we? What are you doing? How can you hang there in the same situation that I'm in, the same situation that he's in, and have that kind of attitude? But the other guy said this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Can I tell you something? I I have, for years, decades now, I have studied these stories again and again and again. I am firmly convinced that this guy had no idea what he was asking for fully. But I remember a seven-year-old boy asking God to forgive him, and he didn't understand what God was going to do either. We don't have to understand it. We just have to have faith. And Jesus said to him, good luck. Hang in there. Sorry. My kids would say bad dad joke. He said, truly, I say to you today, today you will be with me in paradise. As Jesus was hanging on the cross, two convicted criminals on either side, one of them shouting ugly, violent, blasphemous words, yet the other one calls him to task and says, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And he says, Jesus, remember me. If you haven't noticed, Jesus in the same predicament that he was in, he was a dead man hanging, waiting to die. This simple request reveals a profound truth. This man believed the word that we really ought to use there is, it doesn't work in English, but it works theologically, is he faithed, faithed Jesus. He believed that Jesus could do something beyond what he could do himself, something that he couldn't fix. He believed he was more than a man. He believed he was not some common criminal. He believed he could accomplish something for him if he asked. And what this man reveals is the proper approach to come to Jesus as a convicted, condemned, sinful criminal that we all truly are with humble faith and a simple request. Jesus, remember me. I I, I really don't think the guy understood what he was asking fully. I don't think he anticipated the full ramifications of it. He just knows that Jesus can do something. He doesn't know what. And he asked him, and I think that's the point I want you to grasp from this fourth of the sayings that we're looking at is this, is that we need to come to Jesus not with, well, I hope you can figure out some way to maybe possibly get this done for me. But we come and say, Jesus, would you do it? And believe him. Oh, so often we come to Jesus with this mealy mouth. Well, you know, if you get around to it, maybe if you have time, maybe fix. And I don't mean to come to Jesus with a demanding attitude that says, you don't have a choice, I'm in charge. You No, not that. But we come in faith saying, God, I know you can do something. I know you can accomplish something. You can do something amazing. Would you do it? Would you remember me today when you come into your kingdom? What a great attitude 
that is. I think Paul summed up this thought very well when he wrote to the church at Ephesus. And he said this, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And it's not, this is not your own doing. It's a gift. You didn't, you know, we don't earn gifts. We don't, we don't earn, gifts are supposed to be free, right? If you have to earn a gift, it's not really a gift anymore. But he gives us a gift, and it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that nobody can boast. We don't run around and say, well, God, I did this. I served on this committee, and I taught, taught this initial class, and I went to church 40 uh, Sundays out of the 52 in a year, and I was there all the time, and I gave my tithe, and I gave over and above to the Annie Armstrong offering, and I gave to Christmas offerings, and I went to service projects, and I did this, and I did that. And it has nothing to do with that. It's having faith in Jesus. And Jesus spoke to the one. Dear friend, aren't you glad Jesus spoke to you one time? That a moment of encounter with him. And then finally, look at number four, verse 46 and 47. Jesus then spoke to the Father. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, surely, certainly, absolutely, this man was innocent. What we find here is Jesus has been on the cross for about six hours. Jesus was a healthy fellow. He was a carpenter by training. He walked everywhere he went, sometimes 80, 90, 100 miles. That would make you healthy on its own, wouldn't it? Your legs would be strong. Your heart and lungs would be powerful. But Jesus, six hours, gets to a point where he says, it's time. In fact, the Greek that is translated in verse 47, into your hands I commit my spirit, is an active thought. It's not a, oh, well, go ahead and do what you need to do. It's this, I am making the decision to give my spirit to you. I'm commending myself to you. I'm surrendering to you. Now, consider the agony of the moment, wrists in your hands and feet, the shame of hanging virtually naked in the elements, no source of water. It's about three in the afternoon. The sunlight has failed. The curtain temple has torn in two. And Jesus says those words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Friends, this is not a deathbed confession. This is the Son of God purchasing for you And for me, what we needed, forgiveness, if we would receive it. Please grasp this truth. Jesus' life wasn't taken from him. He could have called a thousand angels to remove him from the cross before he died. Instead, he laid down his life for his friends. It's here Jesus makes the work complete, fulfilling the wrath of God, becoming the substitutionary atonement for us, a propitiation, if you want the theological word, and made not a way for you to be saved, but what? The only way. He took my place so I didn't have to pay the price. He took your place so you don't have to pay the price. He did this for you as he said he would. When he said, greater love has no one than this, than someone laid out his life for his friends. What he did at the cross was to make 
forgiveness of sin possible. It's not automatic. You don't get it just because you got out of bed. You don't get it because you have an American citizenship. You get it because you trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And he made the way I couldn't make because of his deep love for you and me. So I'm going to ask this morning, like I often do, have you trusted Jesus? Do you really know Jesus? Are you playing the game of religion? If you're playing the game, my friends, there's going to be a day when you pass from this earth and you're going to be sorely surprised and disappointed because you will be not where you want to be. You've got to trust Jesus. Ask him to forgive you of your sin. Recognize your sin. Forgive him of sin and confess him as Savior and Lord. When you do that, you find life. We want to give you that opportunity this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the day you've given us to come together and be reminded of the ugly moment of crucifixion. But the amazing words of Jesus. Father, I pray for those in this room. Father, many of us have been in churches 30, 40, 50, 60 years. But Father, going to church doesn't make me any more a follower of Jesus than driving through the drive through line at the fast food place makes me a hamburger. It's about trusting Jesus personally and totally and completely. Letting him come into our lives and cover our sin and set us on a new path. I pray for those this morning, Father, who are listening, whether in place, in-house, or online. Father, if they've never trusted you, they would do that. Who cry out to you right now saying, God, I'm a sinner, I need you. God, we pray your hand is to be free as we decide what we need to do, how we need to respond, not to a preacher, not to a church building, but to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who gave his life, gave his life for us. In Jesus' name we pray.